0: who serve, who is in the civil service really matters. And because in order to change how government delivers responsive services, we have to like have the people.
1: Well, welcome back to the Public Money Pod, a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. And of course, we are proudly sponsored by MuniPro. The Government Finance Officers Association, Build America Mutual, and Odyssey Advisors. I'm Justin Marlowe, joined as always by my intrepid co-host, bona fide fiscal policy expert, fantasy football connoisseur, chicken connoisseur, Liz Farmer. Liz, welcome back.
2: Thanks, Justin. We have a new addition to our not not the farm family, but the in the household family. You know, it's still an animal. Uh we we got that's a long winded way of saying we we got a, a kitten a couple of weeks ago. Oh. Uh yeah and uh about a year ago our our cat that we'd had she was 16 years old. She died and um and so a couple of weeks ago I, after our vacations and stuff like that we went to the animal shelter and got a I thought we were going to get a grown cat but they had they were like exploding with kittens. I don't know what happened but it was like there were kittens everywhere. So we ended up with a kitten and she's a typical crazy kitten so that has been a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but highly entertaining i forgot how nuts cats can be
1: <laughs> does she does she play nice with, uh, with the with chickens and uh, everybody else
2: <laughs> she yeah she's staying indoors that's for sure i don't think we'd ever see her again <laughs> um, <laughs> but it, her, her interactions with our dog has been one of the funnier aspects because our dog was trained on our old cat and our old cat was set in her ways she did not like any other animal <laughs> And so our dog, Quinn was taught to stay away. And now he's got this like little, little miniature thing that's like super interested in him and wanting to sniff and all that. And he just sits there. Like you can tell the look on his face, he's just like, oh my gosh, I don't know what to do. And he's frozen. It's, it's, I feel a little bad for him. It's kind of funny. Well,
1: that's wonderful. Wonderful. Glad to, glad to hear it. So we are today talking about outcomes oriented government one of these perennial topics in the world of public budgeting and finance, and we we'll would be fortunate to, to be joined by Caroline Whistler, who is the co-founder and CEO of a group called Third Sector Capital Partners, which has been a, in this space, this outcomes-oriented, results-oriented space for a long, long time. Liz, this is nothing new to either of us. In fact, if you think back, I like to remind uh, all of my students, especially, that this notion of performance budgeting or results-oriented budgeting or budgeting for outcomes, whatever you want to call it, has gone through many, many, many iterations over the years. In fact, here are a history of budgeting walk you can see that New York City experimented with what today we would call results-oriented budgeting in 1926. And there's been many, many versions of similar sorts of things over time. So this is one of these just timeless questions in government. How do you find ways to pay for outcomes, to pay for government, to perform things or accomplish things rather than funding through a traditional line item budget where you're paying for people and commodities and you hope that you get the results that you would like? Is there a way to realign the incentives? Is there a way to set up a structure so that citizens get accountability and outcomes? And third sector has been working in that space for some time, there have been some more recent iterations of exactly that kind of thinking. You've reported on many of those and studied many of those, Liz, uh, in your time working in this space. What can you tell us, Liz, about how pay for performance has evolved over time?
2: First of all, I did not know that about New York City in, ni- in the 1920s. So now I'm going to I'm going to Google that after this conversation. Um, that was a fun. <laughs> you fact, and
1: but... you, you and the three other people who have ever Googled <laughs> yes. that question.
2: But yeah, so in the much in a shorter, shorter term of history, I I first wrote about these, as you've mentioned, the, the idea of let's pay for what works and then keep dumping money towards that. The process also includes finding out what doesn't work. And that is sort of how I entered the, the first foray into writing about this, this type of um, policy making or policy experimentation, really, was with the Rikers Island uh, in New York City. There's a, a recidivism program. Um, and back then, it was still being called Social Impact Bond, which is, as we know, it's not a bond. Um, it's, it's a loan. It's a loan from a, 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 nonprofit, a nonprofit or a private sector entity. And in, in this case, the Rikers Island program, uh, the goal was to reduce recidivism. And there was a specific you know, amount and the and a way that they were gonna do it that was based on on research. Goldman Sachs was lent the money, it was nine point six million dollars. This was the program was announced over I think back in twenty twelve or around there. And even before that program uh made its first report which was after the after a couple of years like it cattle it was the catalyst for other other you know back then social impact bond, but other types of you know pay for success um pilots really and the reason i when i mentioned earlier that it's also about finding out what doesn't work is that the the feature story i ended up writing in governing magazine back in 2015 was about how it didn't work <laughs> they the first report they came out with they didn't reach the outcomes that they thought and so they ended the the program early and it made this big splash because people are like, oh, it doesn't work. It was a waste of money. And then on the other hand, governments are like, well, no, it wasn't. First of all, we didn't have to pay any money. It was a loan and we don't have to pay any money if it doesn't work. But also it's important to find out that this this idea that was based in in research and and things like that in this specific application, it didn't work out. and so that leaves the the door open to explore what what happened why you know what are some other tweaks we could make and and i think that that is how all of this has has evolved. I mean, the names have changed over the years. the um, The approach has certainly kind of taken a left turn and then gone right again. And and it's really kind of weaved around into uh, into what it is now. Which is it's it's almost like a, a little while ago on the podcast we had uh, someone from the Turlock uh, Irrigation District in California, and that to me is an example of like what's going on now with this. And there you know, there was a, a research that came out from a university. The folks at the irrigation district saw it and said, "Hey, let's try that." They got state funding and now they're piloting this program that looks pretty promising. But I mean, and I think that's that's where we're at now with it, which is all those years ago, I think where what the ultimate goal was anyway, there's just been some interesting ways in that this this idea has kind of morphed over the years.
1: Yeah, for sure. It, it, it's in a weird way, in a roundabout way, you could argue that for all those reasons, it was arousing success. So, so much of the promise of the original social impact bond concept was that the private sector would share in some of that upfront risk. As you were saying, they, they loan loan a government some money to try something new, loan a jurisdiction, the resources it needs to build some new capacity or or launch some new program, and then try to pay for results on the uh, on the back end of all of that. Maybe you don't get the results, but the risk sharing was there. And the, without that risk sharing, you wouldn't have probably had the experiment in the first place. And the value, of, as you were saying, of that is that it gives government's an opportunity to recognize the value in learning from things that don't exactly work as well as you might have expected. There's huge costs politically and otherwise to do that. But if you can take the financial piece of it off the table, or at least some of the financial sting out of it, then it encourages that kind of experimentation. And it encourages a gradual rethinking of what we do, how we do it, why we do it, which is really, really important. So Absolutely. Even though the results side of of it may have not been the case, and that's certainly been the case with a lot of other social impact bonds or results-oriented experiments like that, even if you didn't get exactly the results that you wanted, you got a change in process. You got a change in thinking. You got a change in how we go about analyzing what is working well and what isn't. And that's, from a public money perspective, actually a, a really valuable investment over time. Well, we are pleased to welcome to The Public Money Pod, Caroline Whistler from Third Sector Capital Partners. Thanks for joining us on The Public Money Pod. It's
0: great to be here, Justin. Thank you.
2: Yeah, we're really happy to have you. Uh, You are with Third Sector Capital Partners, as Justin mentioned. Can you start off uh, just by uh, telling a little bit more about Third Sector Capital and, and, and what gap you all are trying to fill?
0: Thanks, Liz. So Third Sector, we're a nonprofit that partners with government agencies as our core engagement, also with communities and other stakeholders to really help unlock the possibility of government and social programs to deliver a greater quality of life for the people they serve. So I would say our approach works to effectively catalyze organizational change and reimagine how systems can best achieve their desired outcomes. We have had the privilege over the past 12 years of working with more than 50 communities, mostly at the state and county level where public human services dollars meet the people and have deployed uh, close to $2 billion in government resources uh, towards outcomes. So our work uh, mainly focuses on making a deep impact in four practice areas that kind of emerged organically through our work with uh, state and local government and what they needed. So, our four practice areas are behavioral health, diversion and reentry, early childhood, and economic mobility. So, these are places where you can see there's a large volume of public resources and an opportunity to connect systems and to be most responsive. So for example, during the pandemic lockdowns, our nation had a real crisis around childcare and early childhood education and development. And with everybody at home, childcare centers really struggled to stay afloat because the payment mechanism for how we compensate childcare providers is often per day and by how many children show up. Meanwhile, federal governments responding with ARPA dollars, including funding for childcare stabilization, but the question for every state was really, how could we best deploy those dollars and do it in a way that's going to help our most vulnerable communities and the most vulnerable child care providers, some of which are at home, some of which are our centers, really stay afloat. And so during this time, third sector partnered with four states to develop a different funding formula from how childcare stabilization normally works which is sort of blanket kind of spread it like peanut butter equally across all parts of the state across all centers if you will or by size or by slot by how many kids are showing up we had to shift that model to creating a different model that would more equitably distribute these dollars and ensure that all young children no matter their race background or circumstance and those providers would have what they would need. And so we leveraged the CDC's actually social vulnerability index tool to help governments identify where in their communities, where across their state, what zip codes had the greatest need and how they could think about creating not just set payments that were not based on kids showing up every day, but perhaps by slots and overall enrollment, how they could make those base payments there, but also think about adding different bonuses pending on the needs of the community. And so that was one example where pleased to say, um, just for example, in Massachusetts, The state was able to work with us, developing some different scenarios. They could see the status quo. They could see modeling what it would look like using the social vulnerability index to allocate funding in different ways. They ended up choosing an allocation methodology to distribute over $600 million in ARPA CARES Act funds in a different way to close to 7,000 providers and the result was that they actually were able to keep providers open sustain access to quality early learning programs for over 175,000 kids and to keep critical care workers employed and in many cases compensated many of those bonuses or flexible payments went directly to child care workers and really to keep kids um, in those quality learning programs with a chance at you know achieving those outcomes and moving on
1: Carolyn, it's certainly not any anything new when we talk about outcomes-based government. We've been talking about outcomes-based budgeting, performance-based budgeting, performance results, all those sorts of things for a long, long time now. Uh, and yet, you're you're doing it, and you're doing it in a way that others have not been able to. Uh, what have been the main challenges that you've encountered in the in the process of really trying to build this emphasis on outcomes into into organizations, and uh, what do you think that it is that you all are doing that has been uniquely successful?
0: I would say the the biggest learning that we've had over the past twelve years, and you know, our uh, secret sauce is that you can't shortcut your way to outcomes. And one of the mindsets of how we think about government funding programs is rooted in something that I think is is really a faulty premise. It's that you know we can develop programs perhaps in one place or in one time, or these one interventions with one group of people around a specific challenge and think that we can, if we get success in one place, we can just replicate that program everywhere and have more of a prescription approach or like just, you know, write the recipe, make the policy, make the law. And I think our approach and and one of the reasons that we've been successful is that we acknowledge the importance of evidence-based solutions in human services but we're also really honest and in both a, from a data perspective and from a relationships perspective about the limitations of single interventions, of evaluation and in what are really big social challenges. Because our work is specifically around human services and not transportation or bridges, for example, we really need to acknowledge and that people are not a fixed variable. What they need one year may not be what they need the next. And so a big part about what we do with our outcomes focused approach is to help our government partners shift to a mentality that's focused on continuous improvement. So it's not just about finding that in evidence-based practice and plugging it in and sort of setting it and forgetting it. It's about constantly looking at the data and being in conversation and in relationship with communities to help tailor, to fix programs so that they continue to be responsive, right? That they start from starting evidence base and they continue to do better. And those need shift. The, the approach that we bring and that outcomes focus is, is helping to tangibly move from the idea that government may need to be more flexible than we normally allow it to be within procurement, within program services, and we really go in and try to help shift that mindset from more of a compliance, whether that is a compliance to performance or a compliance to cost reimbursement, to one that is more of an outcomes management mindset. And we are we are deep in it. Um, so we we don't um, bring just the theory, but we we roll up our sleeves and help our government partners to build those capabilities and that capacity.
1: Do you find Carolyn, that? The, just from a data standpoint, when you're talking about outcomes, do those data generally exist within organizations, or are you having to go out and and collect new data, measure outcomes differently? You know how much of how much of that that change and shift toward continuous improvement comes with uh, just getting new information to bring to that conversation.
0: It is a great question, and this is where I like really nerdily love that we are still focused on where public money meets the people and procurement or funding as a way to connect outcomes and the data you collect very explicitly. So most of the time, I would say you have you start from where you do have the data and think about, okay, how can we make sure that in the analysis or interpretation of this data, we're doing better through the procurement um, or program services process, but a lot of times what's great about a procurement is you can say, hey, we've decided these are our outcome goals for this procurement. Here's the data we have that we're going to share and look at across our um, provider portfolio and, and edit over time, and here's the data we haven't collected before, but we're going to collect or start incentivizing the collection of. In the procurement, we have seen um, some counties and states actually reward and compensate providers, sometimes up front, so they can build the capacity to collect data over time. But then certainly, you know, to have a performance period, if you will, that is about just data collection, because... They want to get new pieces of information to learn and improve. And, you know, another important component of outcomes-focused funding and outcomes-focused government is that, you know, pay for performance feels like a very limited or fixed set of, well, you can only pay somebody if they get X outcome or Y. When the, the sort of more interesting, I think, opportunity is to think about how do we incentivize responsive services for everyone in our communities? And we may actually want to incentivize the collection of new data, we may actually want to incentivize some of those interim measures along the way, in addition to outcomes, to help shift uh, a whole service delivery system, right, to perform differently. And I, I say, you know, super nerdily that like a contract is just the articulation of the relationship that you are going to be having with a service provider, with a community. And so it truly is an opportunity to think about shifting behaviors, incentivizing the behaviors that you want to make sure those services end up being the most responsive. And yes, you do get to those outcomes, but there's no shortcuts, right? There's a lot of different interim steps along the way before you can get to magically, you know, economic mobility for your constituents or improve behavioral health outcomes. There's a lot of opportunities along the way.
2: This all sounds um, like an evolution from a decade or so ago when I first started writing about policies and programs that were like, let's only pay for what works and let's find out what doesn't work and not pay for that. And I think it kind of burst onto the scene, I suppose, as these social impact bonds, which of course are not actual municipal bonds, right? But it went from that to pay for success to other iterations of this idea. But what you describe sounds like a much more nuanced approach. And I imagine that that has been built Upon years of of learning how to go about this. Can you talk a little bit about that evolution?
0: For sure. So um, for those that that may not be as familiar with a pay for success approach, I'd say it you know came on the scene over a decade ago, and it was the idea that, We would get government in the business of paying for outcomes by by de-risking their ability to to participate by having government only pay if results are achieved, and then private investors or others would provide the upfront funding for service providers. Uh, Third sector was at the forefront of that movement and supported um, over $100 in pay-for-success contracts. I would say a, a big learning, one of the biggest learnings we had as we partnered truly with uh, county government and state government interested in this work is that Pay for Success was a very innovative idea to start a conversation with local governments about how to do better where their human services dollars were meeting the people. So that was like the, the big learning. What it also was very focused on was single providers. And single interventions, those that could be sort of underwritten for performance, or those sorts of prescriptions that could be scaled, you know. After and then after multiple years, you would look and see those results. And what we heard from our our partners at the county um, at the county level and local level is that it really was um, outsourcing a lot of the sort of continuous learning, the improvement to to providers to investors in a way that governments were actually hungry to bring more of in-house not just for one provider but across their whole funding system so we'd be working on i don't know say a 20 million dollar contract in diversion and re-entry and the district attorney would say you know we spend several hundred million a year like could you help us influence or take some of this outcomes focused approach more broadly because we're spending a lot of time on one contract and we really have to get a lot of money out the door differently every year and so that was one piece where um we we sort of learned that hey maybe there's an option to influence the system more um, and more quickly than with a single single provider. We also learned that you know having multiple stakeholders in the mix, both funders and providers and community members, there was a lot of time spent with investors and funders who were deciding whether or not to provide the upfront funding. And while that was really important and an important stakeholder for this work we realized that you know the, the biggest and the most long-term relationship is with your beneficiaries and with your constituents right and so we wanted to expand the ways and honestly the portfolio approach is, is stronger to engage beneficiaries in 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 the process of deciding what are the outcome goals what are those measurable activities outputs interim feedback to to make progress along the way and so those were some of the learnings that we had and For example, um, in Colorado, we uh, worked on a project with the Colorado Opportunity Scholarship Initiative, which was interested in doing something, in funding something with state funding, which philanthropy funds a lot, which is wraparound services for folks who have started higher education but have not yet completed. Strong investment philanthropically, government was curious to get in the business of Paying in an outcomes-focused way for wraparound services that help folks enroll, persist, and complete their degrees. So that was while it was not a classic pay for success project, there were no outside investors. The uh, we supported the government to create a contract with a service provider, one million degrees um, that was very focused. Provided upfront funding actually for one hundred percent of the cost of services of the program, which is pretty new for a government, you know, cost reimbursement side but then also set up bonus payments if students achieved agreed upon outcomes related to enrollment, persistence, and completion, and that those bonus payments could be rewarded over time and reinvested in the project. In 2021, Governor Polis saw this program, it was called the Finish What You Started program, and decided that it's not only folks that are in higher education in Adams County that should get this, folks across the whole state should have access to this opportunity, to access wraparound services funded by the state in order to help them continue and complete their degrees. And the structure of the project that we created allowed for the governor to then say, Put 48 million of additional public funding to take that initiative statewide and honestly get Colorado in the business of funding wraparound services at an enormous scale and in a way where it is aligned with, you know, again, no shortcut to outcomes aligned with increasing enrollment or re-enrollment back in higher ed, persistence, completing those credentials, and then of course that completion.
1: It's very, very interesting. You'd mentioned, uh, Caroline, the the role of outside funding in the early version of this model. Seems like the re- more recent iterations, as you've been saying, is is a lot more government money and maybe some philanthropic and other sort of support. Are there still opportunities for outside funding in the models that you're looking at right now?
0: It really depends on the context, right? And so we are very much context first, outcomes first. And when we engage with state and local governments, you know, it depends on the project. So we do still do pay for success projects. We, um, we recently launched one in Cuyahoga County, Ohio, that will be announced for National Guard. Um, So we do. Uh, have several examples of that but I think the the shift honestly for, for third sector and the shift that we try to support our governments have in the field is to prioritize hey this is about creating responsive services where are the inequities in our funding and in our systems and how can we best create more responsive programming? If there's a question where, you know, government needs to, quote, get in the business of funding something that it's never funded before, that could be an opportunity where pay for success makes sense. Um, Again, if there are outside funders that are uh, willing to sort of be part of a, in in our minds, like a a larger vision of how this single project could impact either statewide or, or systems wide.
2: What sort uh, who are the outside funders, if you can say, or what, what other kind of organizations uh, get involved in this?
0: So I, for us at this point, given the majority of our work is around outcomes focused government, there are a number of it could either be national philanthropies that are interested in some of our practice areas, behavioral health, economic mobility, diversion and reentry, or place-based that are interested in building a longer term relationship with their county, with their state. One of the other learnings from Pay for Success is that a role that outside funders and philanthropists can play is supporting accountability and transparency over political cycles, over time, to really ensure that the funding is meeting, you know, meeting the needs of the community. And that can shift as mayors shift or as county executives move forward. You can uh, have folks invested in those projects over time. I think something that I've been pretty interested to see in evolution in terms of the funders is I do think that there's just A lot more interest on the part of federal funding and state funding in helping counties and local governments be more outcomes focused, again, because they're the front lines where public money is meeting the people. And so we're seeing, uh, for example, we did a project in Alameda County in our diversion and reentry work. And we were partnered there with the district attorney's office, the probation department. They wanted to reduce recidivism and were curious about how they might be able to change how they show up. They partnering with a community-based uh, behavioral health organization actually um, to think about moving from sort of a compliance and monitoring frame to more of a restorative and supportive frame for their agency. They actually got funding from the state um, that was curious about their approach, um, in addition to outside uh, funders and investors for their pay for success project to help reduce recidivism. And the, the transformation really worked. After two years, the rearrest rate for folks that were formerly incarcerated for felonies dropped by more than 25%. Wow. And nearly half the, yeah, I mean, huge, right? Be, and this was taking a behavioral health centered approach to reentry with, you know, with a community based organization, with coaching, with like partnering with probation officers, but saying, hey, don't be the first line of contact, mm-hmm. right? And nearly half of the participants were never rearrested again. What was so interesting, I mean, visionary from both the county and office but also the state in terms of providing funding to incentivize this type of different systems change approach. And what is so exciting to me about that is that one, just the success of the program is amazing, but the state of California has actually shifted some of their funding. They call it AB 109 realignment funding, but you know, they've shifted realignment from state to local control. Counties can now see what Alameda has done and use their ongoing flexible state funding to adopt approaches that are more um, restorative to build contracts in similar to what Alameda did and leverage their ongoing state, in this case state funding stream, to be um, more responsive and get better outcomes for constituents. So those are the funders, if you will, that I'm most excited about. It's the ongoing you know, human services dollars you get every year from the feds, from the states and how you can use an outcomes-focused approach to either procure for or deliver your services in more responsive ways.
2: And that that to me was always when I was was writing these sorts, right reporting on these stories for for governing, that was always kind of the last question in the list is okay, how are you going to make this, you know, a permanent thing if it works? And I think a lot of governments now that have done a lot of pilot programs using ARPA money are probably asking themselves the same thing. I guess, what would you say, what are some pieces of advice you could you could say in terms of that process of how do I make something that's working really well a permanent feature?
0: It is a great question. And you, there will be peaks and valleys in terms of the public funding that you get every year, you know, particularly in these ARPA years, which are higher levels of funding. It's actually an opportunity to take a step back to really think about What are the outcomes that you're trying to achieve to use the data you have to look at inequities in the system as it exists and to experiment with what it would mean to move from a, okay, we have this money, there's a lot more of it now, but we have to get it out the door. Um, And that sort of being the goal of allocating the money to really thinking about how can we build a system and really a feedback loop with our communities to know whether or not Um, this huge amount of ARPA money is actually getting results. Um, So I would say use it as an opportunity to take a bit more time. I know there's, there's always pressure to get those dollars out the door, right? But truly every procurement and every program funding moment is an opportunity to create a bit more space to build that trust with your providers, with your beneficiaries, to move from a like, we got to spend it and then monitor it from fraud, waste and abuse to like, wait, we have to allocate this, we have to steward this money and we have to be in relationship and learn and improve with our providers, with our community about this money because there may not be that much money next year, three years from now. So we're gonna then need to decide as a community based on what we've learned from all this ARPA spending, what are the best pieces to double down on? We need to learn with our providers together, not just get all the money out as fast as we can and then hope that we get more of it, you know, in in the coming years. It's uh, in, in many cases, like when you have increased resources, that's when like taking the time to set up the process is the most valuable. So that would be my advice is go slow to go fast, build the trust, build that relationship, start thinking about the data you have and that you may need to, to make some hard decisions that you know are gonna need to happen.
1: Yeah, agreed, agreed. Uh, you mentioned the political longevity of these, Caroline. I'm wondering, have you seen adaptations over time as there may have been subtle or maybe not so subtle shifts in policy priorities from say one administration to the next? Or is this a sort of thing where you've gotta have really good alignment for it to, to really fit into the way that a mayor or a county executive or some other uh, leadership is, is thinking about whether this is the way they wanna go about delivering these services?
0: What we try to build, most of our partnerships are with civil servants. So these are the folks that are there before the previous administration and they're there when they're gone. They are the folks that are running the programs where those dollars meet the people. So we try to equip them with the, the language, with the tools that they can say, hey, responsive services and better outcomes for our constituents is something that we should always be striving for. So in each of our projects, we really do try to, to anchor in that way. That said, um, so we work with the ground the ground team, if you will. The, the work of government is inherently political. And so you always need either the, the permission or really the leadership and champions, right? At the agency level, at the political level to make it happen. And those are the areas where I think the the opportunities shift over time, right? Because governors come in, for example, Governor Polis in Colorado, huge higher education priorities. And so it happened to be that the outcomes-focused contract that we were working on in one county was the right thing to expand and take statewide. And so, you know, what, what I would say is that we help our... Um, county and state civil servants sort of be tangible and prepare opportunities to, uh, you know, they're actively in the work of confronting inequities, of shifting their services to be more responsive, and they are looking out for the opportunities to expand that effort systems-wide because, yeah, in Colorado, it happened to be higher ed's moment, right? That was a great opportunity to get the state in the business of supporting and paying for wraparound services, so that is what I would say about sort of the the how you can use the the realities of politics and the the shifting political winds to support advancing an outcomes focused government with a, a little G, I guess, like <laughs> the, the daily the daily government interactions.
1: No, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, every every governor is an education governor, right? Every mayor is for workforce development and economic development. It's just a question of exactly what kind of education governor do you want to be? Exactly what specific focus within workforce development and economic development and community development do you want to be the number one priority? So that's, that's really interesting to hear about how flexible and robust this this type of thinking is and how it seems like it has tremendous potential to you know be in service of any number of different policy priorities.
0: And that I think is part of our dream, Justin, is that this really is about a a mindset shift for the civil service. And this is like the huge opportunity here is to build a new competency for our civil servants (laughs) that are going to be thinking differently. And so we're, I wouldn't say it's a side project, but we're definitely partnering with public administration programs and folks to share our methodology, share experiences, because I think there's just such a need and opportunity to educate the next generation of civil servants to be in the practice of outcomes-focused government.
1: Well, thanks so much, Caroline Whistler, for taking the time to join us here on The Public Money Pod today. We really, really appreciate all your insights.
0: It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much, Justin and Liz.
2: Thanks again to Caroline Whistler for that really great conversation on, on, uh, and insightful comments on how to delve into the impacts of, of public spending. And it led me to one, an article this week. Uh, there's been a lot of news stories about the child tax credit and, and the fact that uh, child poverty has risen in the past uh, year with the expiration of the federal expansion of the child tax credit. The Urban Institute produced some commentary alongside a report it, it released recently. The commentary came out this week, and it's called What's at Stake as Public Spending on Kids Declines? Uh, this is by Carrie Liu, and she points out a few things, noting again that the, the child poverty rate increased. It dropped to a historic low in 2021, and that is largely due to that the uh, temporary expansion of those federal child tax credits. Um, research has shown that people who experience poverty as children have lower earnings and, and tax contributions and are more likely to need public support. So reducing the number of children living in poverty can save the country hundreds of billions of dollars annually. That's that's the running running research theory. Carrie Lou goes on to point out that many public investments in children have have payoffs in the long term as to some state and local programs, for example, such as income supports for families, uh, including tax credits, public spending on health programs, uh, Medicaid expansion, K-12, obviously, and early education. A lot of these have there's been a tons of research done on on these kinds of things and what it means to put more money in more money into people earlier on in their lives. And so again, just this this idea of expanding the child tax credit is, is one more example of doing that. Uh, a couple more points to make. Uh, Carrie, the, the author from the Urban Institute notes that children's spending is expected to fall even farther as a share of the federal budget over the next decade from 10% to just 6% in 2033. I'm assuming that's accounting for inflation as well. So that's a big drop and states of obviously have, um, are, are aware of all of this. And there have been a number of states, 11 so far that have either created new child tax credit programs or expanded existing ones. Um, some of them in response to, to the, to the. To what we saw happen to child poverty in the last couple of years when it was when those federal tax credits were temporarily expanded i mean a a record low in, in kids in poverty is is pretty impressive so states are taking on the mantle of of trying to continue that in their borders and i think to me that's kind of the big takeaway here one of our guests i think at some point recently said the worst thing you can do is to Add money to a program or start a new program, and then take it away, and that's kind of what happened with uh, with the with the child tax credit expansion on the federal level. And so states now seeing the positive results of that. I mean, there's so many trickle down, trickle up results, I suppose, of um, of having fewer kids living in poverty that ultimately produce good economic benefits for a state. And so this is one way that states are are looking at trying to trying to continue this sort of, I guess, experiment, really, of of one of these positive results of of all this spending in response to the pandemic. She concludes by saying investments, boosting investments in children would not only aid children and their families in the immediate term, but would benefit the government and society at large. This is, uh, this is something that's been in the news lately, the, the, what states are doing in terms of expanding child tax credits or, or other types of, of programs that did see good results during the pandemic. A lot of localities, for example, have done the these the universal basic income pilot programs, uh, where uh, low income, lower income folks get a a certain amount of income every month as a as a as a base income. Justin, curious about what your especially with your all of your experience in doing tax credit research, um, what's your take on on the findings as of late?
1: Yeah, it's a great it's a great piece, and I'm glad we're having a chance to talk about it. It's always nice to be able to feature work that the folks at that- at Urban are are doing. And we've had folks from Urban and Urban Brookings uh, Tax Policy Center on this podcast. They're definitely a good authority on this. I think, yeah, the, the just as you said, the thing that really stood out to me was the, the point about tax credits. And, and we would include that uh, tax preferences broadly, we would say, right? Tax credits, deductions, exemptions, et cetera, all under the rubric of tax preferences. We've talked several times on this podcast about how tax preferences are this sort of hidden piece of of state and local finance it's spending through the tax code it's dollars that we would have otherwise collected that we that we don't collect which you could argue is just a different form of spending even though we don't often think of it as a different form of spending one of the big challenges with evaluating them is that it's really difficult to know what you're getting what what, are the, what is the real impact because you're again you're talking about the absence of something rather than a measurable increase in spending or a measurable increase in putting money in the pockets of people as we do in universal basic income and other kinds of programs. The pandemic was a great opportunity to study exactly the, those those effects because we had this massive change in the economy, lots of opportunities to expand child tax credits and other sorts of tax credit, tax preference types of supports for families that happened. The results are, are very clear. This report does a nice job of laying out all of that evidence and, and sort of making the case that is pretty definitive that this is the effect that it had. And so states now with that evidence in tow are are acting accordingly and recognizing that there's a lot of value in this. That was kind of a hypothesis. It was something that the advocates of these programs had been saying for a long time, and now there's evidence to support that that, in fact, that's what happened. For me, that then says, gosh, wouldn't it be nice if we had similar evidence on any number of other places where states and localities devote a lot of time and effort and resources to tax preferences, whether it is in the economic development space or to try to support certain kinds of industries or to try to support affordable housing or to try to support economic development in rural areas or all the other areas where we have focused tax preferences. Of course, we don't want a pandemic. We don't want something horrific to happen that forces us to act and then look at the data that come from that response but it does i think speak to the value of careful systematic evaluation of these kinds of tax preferences which is something that frankly most places don't do many would like to many have talked about there's definitely a real unmet need there and it's an important part of the world of state and local public money that just does not get nearly enough attention so if nothing else hopefully this uh, the, the the work that this report highlights can demonstrate to policymakers that there's a lot of value added in taking a careful look at these issues. Hey, Public Money Pod listeners, the UChicago Harris School of Public Policy is excited to announce that applications are now open for the upcoming ESG and Impact Investing Credential Program. I'll be instructing this course alongside John Oxtoby, Senior VP and Director of ESG Investing at Ariel Investments. We'd love to have you join us on campus on October 29th and 30th for two days of in-person lectures, case studies, networking sessions, and guest speakers. We'll cover key topics such as the policy and regulatory landscape for ESG, impact investing and measurement, financing sustainability, public market strategies and shareholder activism, private market strategies, and public-private partnerships for ESG. This course is a great way for investors or philanthropists to learn how to evaluate and manage impact investment opportunities using various frameworks, techniques, and toolkits. For enterprise leaders to gain strategies and methodologies to improve ESG performance. For public policy and regulation makers to develop more effective policies and to promote the healthy development of their industry. For a consultant or risk management professional who wants to acquire frameworks and analytical tools to better serve clients' development goals, and anyone else working in the ESG space, discover the UChicago Harris difference when you apply today. Explore the program at har.rs slash Harris ESG. That's har.rs slash Harris ESG. Hope to see you there. Thanks again to our season two sponsors, Build America Mutual, MuniPro, Odyssey Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy, where we are proudly produced by Hannah Burnick. You can learn more about the center and its work at munifinance.uchicago.edu. That's munifinance.uchicago.edu. You can learn more about Liz Farmer's work at her substack Long Story Short. That's Long Story Short. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next time on The Public Money.